Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hawaii Church. So good to see all of you here this morning to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. We're going to continue our study through this Gospel of Luke as we look today at verses 14 through 30 in Luke, chapter 4. Uh, this is on page 859 in the Bibles under the seats. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30 is our passage of study this morning. We have a fairly long passage today, so we're going to jump right into that. But before we do, uh, would you bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, once again, we come before you, Lord, expectantly asking, Father, that you would indeed speak to us this morning, that you would show us Christ. Help us, Father, I pray, by your Spirit and through your Word to reveal Jesus Christ to us, that we might see him, that we might understand him more, and that we might love him more. God, there is so much going on in this world right now, so much turmoil, uncertainty, fear, anger, animosity. And it's in the midst of this, Lord, that we, your people, look to you. We trust you, Father, and we ask that you would help us to elevate our eyes and our hearts above the things that we see going on around us, that we might set our gaze firmly upon you and to be reminded and to remember everything that you have done for us in giving us Jesus Christ. Please speak to us now, Lord. Help us as we open up your word. We look forward to what you have for us, and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, it says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, 
All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now last week we read and were taught about Jesus' temptation by the devil in the Judean wilderness. That passage ended with these words in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now the very next verse, which starts our passage this morning, verse 14, says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit of Galilee, and a report, went, a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Now, the way Luke writes this, it would seem that Jesus returned to Galilee right after his temptation by Satan. But in reality, Luke is not giving us a strictly chronological account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Luke actually skips over almost a year of Jesus' life, which you can read about in John chapters 1 through 4. So Luke, in his gospel, doesn't start with anything that was done uh, during that first year. Instead, Luke chooses to begin the narrative of Jesus' ministry very appropriately, I think, with this story of his proclamation to his hometown in Nazareth that he is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Let's look back again at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. These two verses can be viewed as the culmination, the summary of almost a year of Jesus' ministry, mostly in Judea. Luke picks up the story as Jesus now moves northward towards the region of Galilee and his hometown of Nazareth. And as he moves north, Jesus' reputation precedes him as reports of his exploits were going out through all the surrounding country and as he was teaching in the synagogues and being glorified by all. Luke is setting the stage of great expectation for Jesus' homecoming in Nazareth. Look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, can you imagine the anticipation in the synagogue that morning? They've been hearing reports about the hometown boy Jesus throughout all the surrounding country, and now here he is. He's back home. What is he going to say? What is he going to do? Is he going to do a miracle? Now, before we go on, I want to make one quick but very important point. Notice again what it says in verse 16. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was Jesus' custom, his practice, his habit to go to the synagogue every Sabbath day. We need to pause. We need to think about that for just a moment. If Jesus Christ, the creator and savior of the world, believed that it was important to be with God's people, to worship God, and to sit under God's word every Lord's day, then how much more important is it for us, his followers, to do the same? Following Jesus means desiring the things Jesus desired, living for the things that Jesus lived for, and doing the things that Jesus did. And what do we see Jesus doing here? As was his custom 
Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, ready to hear and read the scriptures. If this was our Lord's custom, his habit, his practice, shouldn't it be ours as well? Let's continue. Look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus has just made an incredible proclamation. He has read from the roll of, roll, scroll of Isaiah, from what we now refer to as Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, a passage in which the prophet Isaiah, writing some 700 years earlier, gave a prophecy of the coming Messiah, and Jesus, having just read this prophecy, now announces to his home synagogue in Nazareth that this prophecy has been fulfilled in me. Now, although it does not say in this passage that Jesus exposited or taught with any great detail the meaning behind Isaiah 61, some scholars believe that he did. Citing verse 21, that he only began by saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, possibly indicating that this was just the beginning of his teaching before giving a more full exposition of those passages, which Luke does not record here. A longer teaching would also help to explain the response of the people in verse 22, when they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But whether or not Jesus gave a longer teaching of the Isaiah passage. The main point that Luke wants us to understand here, the main point that he is emphasizing is that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. Now, before we look in more detail at how the people responded to Jesus' astounding claim, we need to first take a deeper look at the prophecy that Jesus read from Isaiah in order that we might gain a better understanding of who is this Messiah, why did he come, and why did the Jews respond to him in the way that they did. Look again at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When the Messiah would come, he would be anointed, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to do four things. To one, proclaim good news to the poor. Two, proclaim liberty to the captives. Three, return sight to the blind. And four, liberate those who were oppressed. Now, the Jews were very, very familiar, not only with this passage, but many other passages throughout the Old Testament that spoke of their coming Messiah. For centuries, they had been longing for his return. And how could you blame them? For at this point in their long history, the Jews had already been under Roman occupation for over 90 years. And for hundreds of years prior to that, they had been subject to invasions and captivity, first by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks. And so a Messiah 
who would bring good news to the poor, freedom from, the cap from captivity, sight for the blind, and liberty for the oppressed. These were all things that they were not only well known by the Jews, but also longed for as a promise that God had made to his chosen people. They were waiting for their Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the one who would save the nation of Israel. But is this what the Messiah really came first and foremost to do? Was his purpose on earth to feed the poor, to free the nation of Israel from Roman occupation, to heal physical ailments, to relieve the oppression that they were suffering from? Was the primary purpose of the Messiah simply to relieve the earthly misery of his people? No. What Isaiah 61 speaks of and what I think Jesus tried to explain to the synagogue attendees that day is that the Messiah was going to do far, far more than that. The Messiah came first and foremost to glorify God. And he would do so by redeeming a lost humanity. The reason for the Messiah's coming was that he was going to set his people free from their sin. The poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed, these are all metaphors that describe the hopeless situation of the sinner. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at these one by one. First of all, the Messiah would come to preach good news to the poor. Although Jesus made it a point to remember and to minister to the poor while he was on earth, Jesus did not come to create a welfare program. Rather, in this context, the poor are the spiritually poor, the poor in spirit, the morally destitute, the bankrupt sinners who have no good within them by which they can barter with God to be saved. And this makes all of us, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, wealthy or impoverished, all of us are spiritually poor. The spiritually poor cannot earn their salvation by following a moral code, obeying the law, or living a self-sacrificing life. This kind of currency will never save anyone. The only hope for this kind of poverty is forgiveness. The debt has to be paid for you. But before our debt can be paid, we must first understand our sin correctly before a holy God. And Jesus gives us a clear picture of this in a parable found later on in Luke chapter 18. He tells this parable to those who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and they were treating others with contempt. Starting in verse 10 of Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is teaching us that the Messiah would come to die for the humble, the poor in spirit, those who recognize that they could never pay their own debt. And it is these, the poor in spirit, who will be forgiven and justified before a holy God. And so the question for all of us this morning is, do you recognize your spiritual poverty before God? Until you do, you will never truly understand the good news of forgiveness that the Messiah brings to the poor, and you will never cry out to him to be saved. Secondly, the Messiah would also come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He would set the prisoners free. Once again, the image of a prisoner is not to be taken literally. Jesus did not come to free Israel from Roman rule. Rather, the prisoners that the Messiah will set free are those who recognize that they are captives to their sin, doomed to hell with no hope of escape. In John 8.34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul describes the battle against sin when he says, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive of the law of sin. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul describes the lost sinner as those who have been ensnared by the devil, having been captured by him, to do his will. All of us, all of us, apart from the saving work of the Messiah, are enslaved to sin and a prisoner of the devil. And it gets worse for the sinner because God's punishment for sin is death. Hell awaits the imprisoned sinner. Do we understand that all of mankind, all of mankind, since Adam and Eve have been captive to sin, slaves to sin, captured by the devil to do his will? Unless we realize this, we will not fully grasp that only a Messiah can truly set us free. Human will and effort is not going to do it. Anger management classes won't do it. The best criminal justice system in the world will not do it. The only way to set the captives free is to come to the Messiah and be pardoned, to be forgiven. Third, the Messiah would come to restore sight to the blind. Once again, blindness is a metaphor representing the darkness in which the sinner lives. Psalm 82.5, they do not know nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. John 3.19-20, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jeremiah 5.21, hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. The lost sinner is spiritually blind, living in a darkness of their own making because they love their evil ways and don't want to be exposed by the light. And although they have eyes, they still cannot see 
No doctor, no medical procedure in the world can heal this kind of blindness because its root is not physical. It's a spiritual blindness caused by sin. And the only hope to cure the root cause is forgiveness. And the only way to be forgiven is to fall down before the Messiah and receive the forgiveness that he freely offers. Fourth and finally, the Messiah has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The idea here is that the Messiah will bring release and forgiveness to those who have been broken and crushed and shattered by their sin. This is not primarily an, an oppression from a Roman ruler. Rather, it is the weight of guilt and remorse carried about by those who have been created in the image of God but who are now living in rebellion to him. I think this is why when Jesus was ministering throughout all the cities and villages in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm sure most of you have heard that sheep cannot take care of themselves. They need a shepherd, and without one, they are harassed, and they are helpless, and they are oppressed. But the Messiah has come to set us free from this oppression. And how is he going to do this? Through the forgiveness of our sins. Though we all, like sheep, have gone astray, though we all have rebelled against the Creator, the Messiah offers forgiveness. This is why the Messiah came to earth. He came to forgive sins because the only way that we could ever repay the debt of our sin is if it is forgiven. Everybody, everybody is poor. Everybody is a prisoner. Everybody is blind. Everybody is oppressed. There is no hope for humanity except that we come humbly, repentantly, desperately to the Messiah so that we can receive forgiveness which he freely gives to all who would come to him. But though the Messiah gives forgiveness freely, it came at a terrible cost to himself. It cost him his own life. You know, if you're new to Christianity, you might be asking, why is that? Why does forgiveness require the death of Jesus? Well, sin against an infinite God requires an infinite payment which means it is a debt that requires an eternal punishment. And the justness, the justness of God requires that this debt must be paid. In other words, a truly just God cannot simply sweep sin under the rug. Any human judge who would simply forgive and release a convicted murderer could never be considered a just judge. And so our sin must be punished. Our debt must be paid. And this is what the Messiah was willing to do for you and for me. He paid our debt with his own life. Jesus, the pure, holy one of God who never sinned, willingly went to the cross to die in the place of sinners like you and me. 
And while he hung on that cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God that should have been poured out upon us for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserved, and by doing so, he justified us before God and won our forgiveness. And so Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus read to the Jews in the synagogue that day, gave a clear picture of who the Messiah was and why he came to earth. And Jesus then says to the Nazarene Jews, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am this Messiah. Now, what do you think was the response of the Jews to Jesus' words. Well, you might be surprised. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Is that kind of shocking to you? Do you, do you think they heard what he was actually saying? Did, did they really understand what he was saying? I mean, the people were at first, they were speaking well of him. They were marveling at his teaching. And if you think about it, honestly, that really shouldn't surprise us. After all, Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. He was the greatest orator who ever lived. And so to hear Jesus speak was to hear gracious words coming from his mouth. And so the people marveled. And they spoke well of him. But there was also doubt. Is not this Joseph's son? And so Jesus sees their doubt and unbelief. And rather than remain quiet and just leave the people somewhat perplexed but wondering and marveling and speaking well of him, Jesus goes straight for the jugular. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus knew that in spite of the people's kind words, they were also filled with doubt and unbelief. He knew in their hearts they were saying something like, Physician, heal yourself. If you're supposed to be this great healer, then show us. Heal something. Do something great and prove yourself to us, Jesus. Those great things that we heard that you were doing in Capernaum, well, bring it home. Do those things here in Nazareth as well. Prove yourself to us, Jesus. But Jesus had nothing to prove. If these people came to faith because of a miracle rather than recognition of their own sinfulness and their desperate need for forgiveness, then they would have come to faith in the Messiah for the wrong reason. The people simply didn't believe. And in spite of their being impressed by his speech, they were rejecting him as the Messiah. And so Jesus rightly states, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus knew the heart of man is the same in every generation. And just as the Israelites had disobeyed, did not believe, rejected, and even killed the prophets of old, the Jews of Jesus' time would likewise reject him. Now, why did the people reject and kill the prophets? Because they thought they knew better. 
They wanted their way more than God's. They refused to bend the knee to God, let alone his human prophets. Pride and unbelief go hand in hand because pride will always ask the question, why should I listen to you? And so Jesus continues. He continues on to show the Jews just how bad and foolish their pride and unbelief truly was. He reminds them of two stories from the Old Testament. Look at verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In these two stories... Jesus was revealing to the Jews that they, like their forefathers before them, were being rejected by God for their unbelief. In both of these stories, God is showing that if Israel will not believe, then he will take his blessing to the Gentiles. Jesus first tells them the story of the widow of Zarephath from 1 Kings 17. Israel at this time was in rebellion against the Lord. This desperate dying widow, however, demonstrated faith and belief and trust in God. During a great drought and famine, God sent the prophet Elijah to Zarephath, to the land of the Gentiles, to this widow who would supply him with food. Even though this poor, desperate woman had only enough flour for one more meal before she and her family would die of starvation, she nonetheless trusted God and followed Elijah's instructions. Elijah told her that if she used that flour to make him some bread, her flour and oil would not run out until the rains returned and the famine was over. This desperate widow, on the verge of death, believed God and she was saved. The flour and oil never ran out. Similarly, Jesus tells the story of, from 2 Kings chapter 5 of how the prophet Elisha healed the Syrian army commander Naaman. Jesus uses this story to again illustrate that although there were many lepers in Israel, none of them had the faith to be healed. And so healing was given to the Gentile Naaman because he believed. Now the point of these stories is not to emphasize how good and deserving the widow or the leper were and how much better they were than the Jews. Not at all. Especially Naaman, who was an arrogant enemy of Israel. But the point Jesus is making is that it doesn't matter who you are, whether Jew or Gentile or what you've done, no matter how heinous or vile you may be, when you recognize that you are poor, that you are imprisoned, that you are blind, that you are oppressed by your sin, and you cry out to God in desperation for forgiveness, forgiveness is what you will receive. But in the time of Jesus, the Jews didn't understand this. Instead, they were trusting in the wrong thing. While God was looking for contrite, humble, faith-filled hearts, the Jews in Nazareth were trusting in their status as Jews. We are the chosen people of God the children of Abraham, the keepers of the law. 
Though that may have been true, their hearts were hard, filled with pride, self-righteousness, and religiosity. So much so that when their Messiah finally entered their midst and even announced his presence to them, they recognized him not. They could not see their Messiah because they were blinded by their sin. And so when Jesus tells them that God's blessing will instead go to the Gentiles, the Jews became furious. What are you saying, Jesus? That God is going to send our Messiah to the Gentiles? And not just any Gentile, mind you, but a widow and a leper? Two of the most lowest people in all of society, our Messiah is going to bless these disgusting, lowly people over us? Do you even know who we are? We are God-fearing, law-abiding, synagogue-attending, tithe-giving, respectable people. How dare you, Jesus? In just a few words, Jesus has peeled back the thin external skin of the Jews' outward respectable appearance, and he reveals the ugliness of what is truly going on under that false veneer. He exposes their hearts to the blazing light of truth and reveals that they are filled with pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. He reveals to them the very core of who they are. You cannot touch such deep nerves without eliciting a massive, even violent response, which is exactly what happened. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You know, in a matter of just a few short minutes, those who were speaking so highly of Jesus now want to kill him. Can you imagine such anger and animosity directed to another human being? You want to kill someone because of what they believe and say. I can't, I can't imagine that. We would never do something like that in our society today, would we? We would. Humanity hasn't changed at all in the last 2,000 years. Our problem of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency are still as deeply ingrained in our hearts today as they ever were. And all the while, this sin of pride continues to blind humanity to the truth of our deepest and most desperate need, the need for forgiveness from a Messiah who will save. And that's our lesson today from Luke 4, 14 through 30. The proclamation of the Messiah and the response of the people. And I hope what we learn from our passage today is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, 
came to earth to save those who recognize that their greatest need is not more money, is not greater freedoms, is not a healthier body, is not a removal of oppression. Our greatest need is forgiveness. This morning, if you are filled with unbelief, if you are not willing to acknowledge that your sin has impoverished you, imprisoned you, blinded you, and oppressed you, if you are trusting in your own importance and self-righteousness or religiosity, if you are waiting for God to prove himself to you, then I plead with you. I plead with you to hear the word that has been spoken to you today and to recognize and to believe that your greatest need in all the world is forgiveness and that you must turn to the Messiah in faith and believe and trust that he came to earth to die in order to secure your forgiveness. But be warned, as long as you are like the Jews of Nazareth, blind to your desperate need and rejecting the Messiah, then just as he did back then, Jesus is going to pass through your midst and walk away. Do not let your pride keep you from the Messiah. But on the other hand, if you are one who has understood and believed and wept and cried out to God because you realized that you were the poor, that you were the prisoner, that you were the blind, that you were the oppressed. And at some point in your life, you found yourself standing next to the tax collector, crying out to God in repentance, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If that describes you this morning, then rejoice. Rejoice. Your Messiah has saved you. So rejoice. In spite of your personal struggles, in spite of all that is going on in this world today, in spite of all the fear and the turmoil and the anger and the hatred, rejoice. For your greatest need has been met. You have been forgiven. Now go and tell others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that uses your word to teach us, to instruct us, to point us to Jesus, to glorify him. And I thank you and I ask you, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, continue to work in our hearts this morning. Continue to help us, Lord, to see Jesus Christ, our Messiah, for who he truly is, to understand truly what he came to do for each and every one of us. I pray, God, that if there are those whose hearts are hardened to you this morning, that, Father, you would be merciful. And that you would help us. Help those who need you. And open blind eyes. 
But Father, we also thank you and we rejoice also, Father, in the fact that we know you and that for those who have cried out to you, Father, forgiveness for forgiveness, that we have found it in Jesus, that our Messiah truly has died for our sins and made us right with you. So we thank you again. We praise you for this morning. And we look to you again. We ask that you would bless the rest of our morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.